So if, if, uh, if we're going to go into a multi-domain operating environment, we have to have multi-domain intelligence. You can have the most pristine sensors in the world, and if you, if you don't have the right um, analytics and cloud computing to be able to, to uh, sort all that data, you're going to be in trouble. It's not a secret that over the last 20 years, uh, foreign intelligence entities have had a vector um, on our networks, on our, our partners' networks, and uh, there's been a, a gigantic theft uh, for the Army, we really have a counterintelligence posture that was developed uh, in the Cold War, and so we need to we need to turn that around first. Hey, and welcome back to the MWI podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI, and for this episode, I sat down for a conversation with Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. He is the Army G2, the senior most intelligence officer assigned to the U.S. Army headquarters. For a discussion about the Army's intelligence enterprise, there is quite literally nobody better to have as a guest, and we took full advantage by touching on a range of issues. He explains, for example, what the Army's shift toward preparing for conflict with a near-peer adversary means for intelligence professionals. He also talks about how Army modernization efforts and the transition to multi-domain operations are playing out from an intelligence standpoint. We even discuss one of his biggest priorities as the Army G2 counterintelligence reform and how the army can best contribute to protecting things like sensitive technologies from adversary efforts to steal them. It is a fascinating conversation and a really important one, but before we get to it, just a couple quick notes. First, make sure you're subscribed to the MWI podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, enjoy the episode. Sir, thank you very much for uh, joining us for this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. So first, can you give um, listeners a little bit of background about your role? You're now the uh, Army G2, uh, but what brought you here? Sure. Well, thanks for the question, and uh, thanks for allowing uh, allowing me to do this today. Uh, I'm a year group. Uh, 1984 guy, have been a military intelligence officer my entire uh, time uh, in the Army. If you were to take a look at my 35 years or so, it would be a whole lot of two-time, some command time, uh, but mostly being a two-at-all-levels battalion, brigade, um, division, some special operations time, uh, corps, uh, and then uh, USFK, CENTCOM, uh, Resolute Support Headquarters. So, So all of that brought me to this point today as the Army G2. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm in good company with um, the CG of our cyber, Lieutenant General Steve Fogarty, uh, General Paul Nakasone, uh, the commander of, um, of Cybercom and director of NSA, uh, Lieutenant General Bob Ashley, the director of DI. We're all, we're all about the same year group, and so we all came in together. So it's interesting that we all find ourselves at this point now um, as, we, as we go forward. But I think all of us think of our careers in, in two, two different eras. And uh, the first era was the era before 9-11. And that was really the, the Cold War era and the post-Cold War era. And when we were young officers and we came in the Army during that Cold War, um, it was really about solidifying airline battle doctrine. And, and that doctrine said, we're, we're going to fight the Soviets and we have to do it outnumbered. So we have to do it with uh, better stuff and smarter ways of, of war fighting. And I didn't think about it at the time, but we were really we were really perfecting 
a way of warfare in which the, the Soviets really couldn't compete with us. And we also had the nuclear triad. So we, we essentially spent them into oblivion and, and won that war and really destroyed uh, that, that system for them. And I and guess I, I, I didn't think about it in that context back then, but that's what that we did. That was going to be my question was as a, as a, as an intelligence officer in the army at that point, um, was that, was that obvious that that was what was happening or is that something that you sort of, as you've grown in your, you know, in your profession that you've looked back on retrospectively and kind of understood? Retrospectively. So it wasn't, it wasn't obvious to me uh, at the time that that's what was going on, but on a, a grand strategic scale, that's what our country was doing. And the fact that our economy was stronger, that uh, we were much technically, much more technically advanced, we, 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 we could do that. But if you, if you think about the concept of airland battle and creating the big five, you know, the helicopters, uh, the, the long-range artillery systems, the, the theater, high-altitude air, air defense, all of those things uh, that we developed, the M1 tank, the, the Bradley, all of that was better. And then, and then during the, the, the 80s and 90s, we really perfected how we do airland battle. Think of the, the deep operation strikes and the coordination cells and warfighter after warfighter, NTC and GRTC rotations where we perfected that. And then when the, when the wall came down, we had this wonderful – army that could do just about anything and we went to a desert storm and we we toppled saddam relatively quickly and i think at that point that is where uh, our adversaries really started to take a look at what kind of capabilities that we had we could strategically deploy um, we could employ precision fires we could defeat forces that were much larger numerically and, and do it pretty pretty quickly and so uh, when you think about um, what the chinese were doing at the time and what the russians were doing at the time uh, they, they woke up and started to to come to the awareness that their armies were really, really inadequate. And so about that time, uh, 9-11 happens. And we had all this combat uh, capability, but we really couldn't bring it to bear on the fight that we needed it to. So we, we went from this airland battle construct of major maneuver formations, force-on-force capability, to having to be a CT and coin force. And, th- and that really... I think jolted our army. So as we got into these rotations in the R4 Gen model that brought us to Afghanistan uh, and Iraq, we really had to change the way we thought, the way we operated. And, and so that airland battle force really, really became the finest uh, counterterrorism force and counterinsurgency force the world has ever seen. And if you think about the intelligence assets that we had to go force on force in the 80s and 90s, um, we completely... Um, threw those out and created created new capabilities. So if you were a, a terrorist or an insurgent and you were talking on a single-channel push-to-talk radio um, or you were talking on some sort of uh, cell device, the chances were very, very good that our forces were going to find you and fix you and uh, and dispatch you or capture you. We became very good at that. And those, those kinds of capabilities were resident early in our special operating forces, but we proliferated that across across the formations. And so every brigade combat team that deployed and every battalion task force had this sort of capability along with really, really good human and CI. Uh, and we, and we became very, very good, uh, at this long, uh, war that we've, we've prosecuted. Um, but as those wars come to an end, we, we find ourselves at another crossroad. Um, and it's, it's very similar to a crossroad that I think we, we had, uh, in the seventies when we came out of Vietnam, we, we realized that we were a little out of balance and we needed to reshape, and that was what brought in uh, the airland battle doctrine, and, and now that's what's bringing in uh, multi-domain operations. And I think with Secretary Mattis and his 
a national defense strategy, the way he laid out that framework for the threat with a two plus three or the four plus one, however you want to talk about it, it really puts uh, China and Russia in a spotlight for us to uh, to focus uh, capability development on. And, and that is uh, where we have embarked. So where we've come from is where we are today. And for me, uh, after 35 years, it feels like we're reliving a little bit of that history, but it's a good thing. Sure. So you talked a little bit about the tools post 9-11, uh, all of the different tools that, that, that were developed. Uh, how much consistency is there? You, you kind of hinted that you know, this Cold War army had a set of kind of intelligence tools, and we, we just got rid of those and created some really, really good new ones. Um, are we now going to set those aside and come up with new ones too? Or is there some consistency? Are some of those tools going to be the ones that we need for you know, conflict with a near-peer adversary? Yeah, so great great question. If you, if you think about, you sort of need to have uh, uh, feet in both camps. So the, the, the coin and CT threat is not going to go away. And if you consider it sort of the long war, the forever war, <clears throat> until we come up with a better idea, we, we are always going to be dealing with the next ISIS, the next Al-Qaeda, uh, the next Boko Haram, wh- whatever it is or wherever it is, we want to play the away game. And so we're going to have to retain um, the kind of coin CT um, intelligence tipping Q capabilities that we have now. We're going to have to continue to, to work on those as we go forward and make sure that we maintain those skills. Uh, but as we as we think about uh, near-peer adversaries, the, the environment and the domains change. Uh, with multi-domain operations, we've added cyber and space to it. But if you think about how our adversaries have transformed themselves, they now have very advanced um, communication systems, advanced radar systems, and we we have to be able uh, to get into the electromagnetic spectrum like we haven't before uh, to define situational awareness, understand where they are, and to be able to uh, prosecute sensor-to-shooter kinds of operations that at scale that we, we haven't done before. And so as our Intel modernization program goes forward, uh, that's really the construct that we're thinking about right now. The Army's undergoing a very deliberate um, and, and I think, important uh, modernization. Anybody who watches the Army um, or is part of the Army is aware of that. What does that look like from an intelligence um, standpoint? Right. So if, if, uh, if we're going to go into a multi-domain operating environment, we have to have multi-domain intelligence. And that is the framework in which we are uh, modernizing right now. So we, we, uh, we received permission from the Secretary uh, and the chief last year to create an ISR task force. Uh, and the ISR task force uh, mission is to really sort of understand what the requirements are in that multi-domain operating environment and then develop uh, sensors, concepts, and techniques uh, to be able to get after the, the, the near-peer adversary. So we, uh, the way we organized, uh, I lead uh, here from the, the G2 uh, Department of the Army, uh, the ISR task force, but I have a lot of help and a lot of lifelines uh, we have uh, several components. The first is the uh, the terrestrial component of the ISR task force. Uh, that that is led by Lieutenant or Major General Laura Potter out at the Intelligence Center of Excellence, and they are working the pieces to to modernize our terrestrial collection system, primarily the terrestrial layer system right now, which will will replace our profit systems, our former our former SIGINT system. And uh, the interesting thing about TELUS is it converges SIGINT electronic warfare and cyber into a, a single uh, entity or, or, or sets of kit. Um, very interesting there. In what sense? Well, the, uh, for the first time in a long time, we're, we're pulling back in uh, the electronic attack uh, into, into the equation. So you'll have SIGINT operators and electronic warfare operators working at the same time along with uh, a SEMA cell uh, configuring uh, cyber kinds of operations. So I think it's a really interesting time. And, 
and we have to work through those those TTPs, but it'll give an exponential increase in capability to the brigade combat team uh, as, as we roll that out uh, in the next couple of years and we test and um, experiment with it. On the, uh, on the aerial side, we, we have this thing called the multi-domain sensing system. And so if you think about all of the aerial assets that we have now, whether they're uh, unmanned uh, UAVs, um, gray eagles or shadows or some of the, some of the handheld uh, stuff, they're basically full motion video and some technical capability, but they're really they're really designed to be coin and CT assets. Um, we we need sensors like that against a near peer that can go high and go deep and go against advanced signals. So, um, sort of platform agnostic look at uh, suites of sensors that could be used in a multi domain uh, operation that could see deep to support a long range targeting. So the MDSS effort, the multi-domain sensing system effort, is led by Major General Gary Johnson. He's the INSCOM commanding general. He, he has that set of platforms resident within his formation, so we think he's got the right expertise to, to experiment and do some things there, work with industry and academic partners to figure out what is the best uh, suite of sensors that can go after those advanced signals as, as we go forward in the future. And then the last component of the, uh, of the ISR task force is, is really the space layer, and there's two components to that. The first is um, a ground station that that can sort of do it all for us. So if you look at our formation now, we have um, various um, sets of ground stations that do different things. We think consolidating uh, into sort of a universal ground station is, is the way to go. And that ground station would be able to uh, receive uh, uh, national uh, kinds of uh, capabilities from space as well as commercial. Um, but it would also have the ability to perhaps um, have a direct link uh, be able to support a ground commander, a BCT commander, or division commander um, in a multi-domain operation so that you can get the right intelligence uh, at the right time. So we think that that ground station called Titan uh, will be very important. And then and then working with our uh, agency partners to put the right kinds of sensors in space in a low Earth orbit, LEO orbit, uh, are really what we need to do to have a persistence uh, and kind of a stare on the sort of targets that we would need. So it's a multi-layered approach uh, from space, air, and the ground to be able to sense the environment. And really what we want to do is we call it turning gray icons red. So if, if, uh, if you're looking at a, at a SIP map and you see red icons, you pretty much have confirmed where they're at. Um, if you're looking at gray or dotted line icons, it's a, it's a, a templated position. We want, to, we want to confirm those positions. And in an environment where you have uh, adversary signals that are really advanced, you want to be able to turn those gray icons red so you can do something to them whether it's target them, deceive them, or, uh, or dispatch them in some way. So all of the efforts that we have going on for modernization really wrap around this idea of turning gray icons red and understanding a very complex electromagnetic spectrum like we never had before. That all sort of, um, I mean, you've talked a lot about collection platforms, really. Um, on, on the sort of analytical side, uh, that presumably will produce a lot of data. Um, how big a problem is that, and how um, how how is the army kind of conceptualizing getting their heads around data management from an intelligence perspective? Yeah, really first uh, first order problem. You can have a, the most pristine sensors in the world, and if you if you don't have the right uh, the right kind of uh, um, analytics and cloud computing to be able to to uh, sort all that data, you're going to be in trouble. Um, if I can back up a little bit though, the the foundational system that we have is called the Distributed Common Ground Station Army D6A. Uh, many people are aware of it. Um, some people love it. Some people loathe it. Um, but the history, the history of that system is really born 
in the late 80s and 90s in a system called ASAS, the all-source analytical system. And, and the idea behind ASAS was that we would, uh, we would be able to, uh, to collect all the data that we could, um, and it would process that data in real time, and then it would pop an icon on a screen in real time and tell you where an enemy unit was or where it was going. And while it was a great idea, still a great idea, it was uh, too complex for the technology at the time, and we could never make it work. Um, we, we did get it to work in, in warfighters and exercises, but it took a lot of manual inputs to adjust it. So that was the idea. And then as, uh, as 9-11 and the aftermath of 9-11 occurred, we knew we needed another system, and, and we developed D6A. D6A started out um, with the same kind of idea but, but had a bit more of a, of a modern structure and thinking about databasing and, and computing, but it's, it still really wasn't enough. And so as we deployed that system into um, Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, commanders had different requirements, and, and we started to build on the base system with lots of software ads, and those software ads sometimes created problems for the user. And at, at the end of, of, of that, we, we had a system that took a long time to train, uh, was only functional when operators were on it every single day and really, really time and labor intensive. We have, um, we've gone to a new strategy with D6A from, a, from an incremental approach strategy to a, a capability drop strategy. And, and the most recent capability drop was a CD1, capability drop one, and that was the D6 for the battalion solution. And so we, we took all of this kit uh, that, that previously was at the battalion level, which consisted of uh, uh, fusion workstations, uh, servers, and other things, and have replaced it with three uh, laptops. Uh, those laptops have uh, six basic functionalities uh, that a battalion S2 shop would need. So we've taken about four or 500 pounds of kit out of the battalion and replaced it with three laptops uh, that can act as a server and be connected to uh, the intelligence architecture. They do uh, IPB planning, collection management, uh, battle tracking, uh, can produce a cop, uh, works with other mission command uh, systems. So it's, it's a really modernized uh, solution for the battalion. So that's capability drop one. Um, that's fielded, going to be fielded to every every maneuver battalion uh, across the Army with it this year. It's ongoing now. And I suspect before it's done, we'll probably field a lot more capability drop one systems to more <clears throat> more battalions across the Army. The next step for uh, for the D6 program is uh, is capability drop two. And, and capability drop two is is going to uh, fix our data problem. so if you if you look at the data structure that we have, uh, right now across the Army, all of our theater military intelligence brigades house uh, repositories of, of theater data, and they're all over the place. Um, CD2 is going to create uh, three cloud-ready nodes, one in the Pacific, one in Europe, and one CONUS that will replace all of those. And with the, with the data standards uh, that the Undersecretary of Defense Intelligence and the ODNR are creating for us, and with what the combat support agencies are doing to create cloud computing solutions, we'll combine that with those cloud-ready servers, um, add advanced analytics uh, in the software. And we, we think that the, the CD2 solution is going to dovetail nicely with what we've done with CD1. So as we modernize this entire architecture, um, what we see are less server farms, less equipment, um, more advanced computing power, and more advanced analytical tools for the, for the analysts, and I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. At the end state, though, where, where we see this going is, is really a convergence into the command post computing environment. So if you think about um, the future talk, whether it's a division or a brigade, and 
um, the commander or the three or the two has a tablet, maybe it's an iPad, he'll have a suite of applications and one application would be Intel and you pop the Intel app and it cascades into IPB, collection management, terrain analysis. And we, we think this will be an application-based uh, kind, of, uh, kind of command post um, computing environment with, with uh, all of the Intel apps uh, there. So, so we're really, um, in a way, divesting of the D6 program of yesterday and moving to a much more uh, modernized structure. But where we want the advanced analytics to take us. So if you think about um, when you and I went to uh, our basic courses and our advanced courses, career courses, and when we were training on IPB, we did all that manually, and it took it took hours. Um, in the capability drop one solution, now that that battalion laptop can do a terrain analysis on any on any DTED terrain in seconds, and it can produce a MACU for you there. So wow. so so think if you have that capability, what if you had um, all of the order of battle data digitized, and once you did your MACU. Um, you could reach into the cloud and grab the uh, the, the the dock temp and the sit temp uh, for the 77th Motorized Rifle Division from whatever army and digitally grab that and then throw that on that train that's already been analyzed. So a process that would have taken an analyst previously eight hours um, analog, maybe maybe four hours on the old D6 system now takes you seconds. That is within, that is within reach. And uh, we're working on some programs now to actually digitize that uh, with algorithms so that so that we can we can portray a unit in the defense and the offense and have that resident in capability drop too as, as we go forward so if you have a modernized solution with the right data in the cloud and the right uh, ai to be able to do these kinds of things we need to do um, it's going to streamline everything and then that applies directly into how we anticipate sensitive shooter links are going to work in the future where where we want to very, very rapidly be able to uh, sort targets and be able to get them to the, the weapon systems that can affect them. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. It, and big changes. I mean, like major, major changes. Um, would you characterize them as changes in what military intelligence professionals in the Army are expected to do or in how they do those things? Well, you know, the... Uh, the, the bottom line is we want we want military intelligence professionals to be people who are just naturally curious and who who won't quit on uh, on finding on finding answers. So uh, I still want our MI lieutenants, our MI sergeants, and our young soldiers to be uh, to be very aggressive in how they go about satisfying uh, information requirements and doing doing what we do. Uh, and I sort of I sort of think that as you as you go through this profession, um, you tend to you tend to sort out in a couple of different ways. Um, when you're a battalion S2, you sort of have to, you sort of have to do it all. You have to be a sort of an integrator of the Intel warfighting function and you have to kind of be a senior analyst because your staff is so young. But as you grow into the profession as a, as a senior sergeant, as a, uh, as a captain and as a major, you, you sort of internally define yourself as either the senior analyst or the integrator of the Intel warfighting function. And I think as I've grown, um, in this profession, uh, you know, my happy spot is more as an integrator of the warfighting function doing intel ops. And I've always found great uh, warrant officers and sergeants and soldiers who, who rose to be the senior analyst along with the civilians in our profession, too. So as you, as you grow into it, you kind of have to determine and have this com- conversation with your commander. Are you the senior analyst or are you going to be the integrator of the warfighter, war, uh, intel warfighting function? And I think it's an important distinction. But, but having said that, I, I believe that our schoolhouse at Fort Huachuca um, is is turning is turning very very rapidly to to do the things that we need to do. So right now um, they have moved from from a coin CT 
uh, focus, network targeting focus, back to the, the force-on-force focus. So I, I think they're there. They're also talking about uh, how to integrate Capability Drop 1 into their courses. We bought them uh, some of the same tool sets uh, for, the, for the school there. So I, th- I think they're well ahead of it. And now um, as we've reorganized TRADOC, you have Army Futures Command and, and uh, the FCC. They're doing a lot of the conceptual work. The CDIDs are now working for uh, Lieutenant General Wesley there, but still have a, a, a good linkage into the schoolhouse. So I think there are a lot of things that have happened clued uh, together that are, are going to propel us very, very uh, quickly forward. You mentioned kind of the schoolhouse uh, shifting, kind of what they're teaching. Um, you know, there were many years where if you're a battalion S2, you were doing lots of, you know, IED pinwheels and things. But I recently read... Um, again, a memoir by the uh, Patton's intelligence officer. Mm-hmm. And really yeah. what you come up with, it's a short book. It's 140, yeah. Yeah, 140 pages. And it's almost exclusively about finding out where the enemy is. Yeah, Is that really what it comes down to? Because you actually mentioned that a couple times earlier today too, is trying to kind of um, uh, find adversary positions, find enemy positions. Is that is that really what intelligence boils down to is Where's where's the other guy? I think I think you know at it, at its core, it's about it's about helping the commander understanding uh, what his environment is and what the situation is, and finding finding the enemy is part of that. But it's also understanding the complexity of the environment that you have. And so, you know, the difference between uh, World War II and now is that it's a it's just a it's a much tougher job for it for a two. And if you if you think about everything that a two has to contend with in cyber, worrying about adversary space systems. Um, the adversary that we're going to face in the future will have similar capabilities uh, to what we have. And so we have to be cognizant of all of that capability and be able to boil it down into, uh, into uh, bite-sized chunks for commanders to be able to, to make sound decisions on. Um, you know, finding the enemy now is, is a lot more about understanding what else is going on in the environment, what they're trying to do to us versus a location uh, on the ground. Uh, and it'll be done at distance and speed. And so if you think about the adversary's uh, radar systems and their ability to influence um, our lodgement, our deployments um, back in CONUS or forward, wherever that is, um, we're going to be fighting either in cyber and space from, from the, the, the day of the start of the, of the fight. Um, and that may not be kinetic, uh, but, but it'll, it'll still be uh, something that we have to take into account. How much, um, you know, I was at uh, last summer, I got to observe some... Um, formations on an exercise at JMRC um, in Europe and there was one that was jumping talk like every 30 to 90 minutes for two days or something how much does that challenge uh, particularly the you know the two shop um, who typically has a, a few more devices and wires and things that they how, how big a problem is that it's a really big problem uh, you know if you think about um what our adversaries have been doing the last the last uh, few years, they, they have developed pretty significant um, electronic warfare and electronic attack capabilities. So they have major formations in both uh, uh, the Chinese and and uh, the PLA and the and the Russian army have these have these formations, and they have significant capability to affect the electromagnetic spectrum. So we have to be very agile. Part of the thinking on CD one was to make everything in the battalion lighter to reduce the the server load. On, on the battalions as they move. So I, I think um, it's good uh, that uh, as we go into exercises that our, our commanders and staffs understand that they're going to be surveilled, uh, they're going to be attacked. Um, it's not going to be like 2005 in a, in a FOB in uh, Mosul or, or um, uh, the Korangal. I mean, you, you, you won't have sanctuary anywhere. 
and you have to be agile and, and mobile. And, and the, the fobs of the past where we had fixed architecture, I think those days are over. I think it's all expeditionary mobile. And that's where the edge nodes come in. So part of the capability drop two strategy that I didn't mention before is we, we believe that we're going to have to operate uh, disconnected from from the network. And so these edge nodes, these snowballs, these 50-pound these um, mini cloud servers, if you will, will, will travel with the formations and, and until they can connect back to the what I would call the Borg or the network, they're, they're going to have to survive on those edge nodes. And that's part of the, the CD2 strategy that we're working as well. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, you talked about capability, both our capability and adversary and potential adversaries' capabilities. A lot of that stuff comes down to tech, software. Um, how much of that is driven by um, partnerships with the private sector? And to the extent that it is, is it becoming more difficult when, when um, you know, we talk about if we have a weapon system or a platform that's developed in the United States, there might be a few years later, you see something that looks really similar to that popping up in, in China. Um, how does that problem set, I guess, overlay on, on intelligence capabilities specifically? Yeah, you're, you're getting at a, a really uh, big problem in my emerging uh, number one priority, which is counterintelligence reform and how do we protect our technical base. But let me, let me back up to the first part of your question about how important it is to have partnerships. So um, part of the problem with our D6 program was we developed it in-house with government software developers, and they're, they're very bright people. Um, but they're not agile enough and they don't move fast enough and our acquisition and development and S&T systems just don't don't move fast enough. So in order in order to realize the vision of grabbing that that uh, sit temp out of the cloud uh, ingested with with AI, we're, we're going to have to go to uh, commercial vendors to help us do that. Um, to write those the, the coding for the algorithms is, is work that we, we cannot do alone. We need we need the partnerships. So we have to uh, we have to encourage, uh, industry, academia to come along with us to, to help us do this. And I think I think a lot of great Americans out there want to do it. The problem with that is you sort of expose yourself to foreign intelligence entities that would like to get at that. And, you, you know, you mentioned systems that look very much like uh, American systems. It's, it's not a secret that over the last 20 years, uh, foreign intelligence entities um, from multiple countries have had a vector um, on our networks, on our, our partners' networks, and uh, there's been a, a gigantic theft, uh, and, and we're realizing that now, and, and we're taking steps uh, to mitigate that. For, for us, uh, for the Army, we really have a counterintelligence posture that was developed uh, in the Cold War, and so we need, to, we need to turn that around first. So we need to reorganize ourselves to be thinking through uh, what these threats mean now, what they mean in the future, and how our adversaries will vector on us. And so I if you were to develop a, a, a counterintelligence heat map of, of the United States, you would clearly see that uh, the biggest threats are to our, 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 our biggest tech partners in California, uh, Central Texas, um, Alabama, um, where, we, where we have labs in Aberdeen. Those, those are all under threat, and we need, to, we need to reorganize ourselves to be able to protect that. So it's a, a new way of thinking about how we're going to deal with the threat. Uh, we have to be much more agile, and we have to rebalance our counterintelligence force so that we can put the majority of our agents – um, on this problem right now, because if you think about the CI force as an iceberg, uh, with the most pressing national security problems at the at the top of the iceberg, um, most of those agents are below the water doing sort of tactical operations in force comm units or or in different theaters. They're not really getting at uh, that national problem. So we need to reorganize ourselves to be able to do that. And we're working through some concepts now. Um, they're probably not going to be popular because we're we're going to have to 
we're going to have to access some of that that talent and manpower at other levels that haven't been doing national security investigations to get them uh, into this game. Because if, if we're going to succeed and protect our secrets um, and protect our technology, we're going to have to get a lot more engaged. Have you found those partnerships? Um, have you found sort of private sector partners, whether they're companies or, or universities or university programs, um, willing? I find them uh, extremely willing um, and surprisingly willing and interested in what our problems are and, and how they can help uh, solve them. Uh, what we have to be careful with our academic partners is, is uh, who, who is in their house and, and students from what countries are, are helping them uh, develop that technology. And so we're very, very careful and we're really trying to educate our academic partners on, on security processes and procedures and some things that they should be thinking uh, with uh, with their student body and and how all that uh, how all that works, um, but I, but I do find them to be extremely cooperative, and ex- extremely interested in wanting and wanting to help as we go forward. I kind of want to wrap up by maybe asking you. Um, I've asked this question several times of senior leaders in the army, um, specifically about um, from a kind of combat arms perspective. You know, if you if you take a soldier. 10 years from now, how is their experience on a foot patrol going to be different than a soldier that, you know, is in the army now and has been over the past 10 years? What about from an intelligence perspective? What is a, a, a new battalion S2 or, or assistant S2 um, 10 years from now? How is that experience going to look really, really different from somebody who say has, has been, an, you know, an MI officer for the last 10, 15 years? I think uh, you're going to find, um, our intelligence professionals in the future are really, really good at dealing dealing with multiple dilemmas at speed. So if you if you look at if you if you watch um, Battalion S two is going through the National Training Center, the Joint Readiness Training Center now, um, we're we're still um, we're still a little slow on the uptake. We're s- still clunky at times because of the tools that we have, not because of the talent that we have. But I think the tool sets that we're going to give the force between now and ten years from now are really going to uh, leverage all of the advanced technology that's out there to be able to move much, much faster. And so I, I think um, as, the, as the environment becomes more complex, we're going to be able to assume more insight from all that data and be able to leverage it and give commanders much more situational awareness than, than what we have now. And so as, as our kids are coming up, um, they're, already, they're already tech savvy, um, much more tech savvy than this digital immigrant is. Uh, so I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm very, very positive and, and hopeful about what, uh, what uh, our talent management processes are going to do and, and what the future is for our, our intelligence force. It's, it's looking really good right now. You said that they're going to um, be very good at dealing with multiple dilemmas uh, very rapidly. Um, a critic could say, well, they're going to have to. That doesn't necessarily mean that they will be good at it. So what are the characteristics you said? Technology is one of the limiting factors right now. It's not necessarily the people, yeah. it's the technology. Um, but from a people perspective, what are the characteristics? You mentioned kind of an, a curiosity uh, earlier. But if you are, are you know, are looking at, at, at 10 years down the road and you've got people who will be joining the Army at that time, who are the type of people that you want to make sure are being filtered into the MI MOSs? Well, first, first and foremost, we always want people of good character. I mean that that kind of goes unstated for any any soldier coming to the army. So we want the right the right character coming in. But if I could put a finer point um, on on what the intelligence soldier officer is of the future, it's that it's that natural curiosity. Um, it's high intellect. Um, it is gregarious because we we are in a people business. And and uh, if if you can't brief and you can't communicate 
there, there are probably other things that you can be doing in the army. So you have to have that, that skill as well. And so, so even if you're introverted, that can be cultivated in, into a, into a really good thing, um, as a, as a, as a writer, uh, and briefer, um, certainly higher end, um, analytical skills, higher end, uh, computing skills, uh, the tech sector always, always welcome into our force. And, and honestly, you know, when we think about recruiting at West Point, um, a lot of branches go to West Point every year to try and recruit. Um, MI doesn't really have to do that. Um, we, we just draw, we draw talent. And so, and so um, it's an exciting branch. There's a lot of different things to do, whether, whether you want to get uh, technical with signals intelligence um, or moving into even, even, uh, even the cyber aspects or, or human intelligence or counterintelligence. Uh, there's just a lot of really interesting things from tactical, strategic uh, that we have to offer, and I and I think that will continue in the future. And I'm I'm feeling really good about where the direction of our branch is heading, not only with the leaders that we have now, uh, but also those uh, those battalion commanders, those battalion brigade S3s that are coming up, those those sergeants first class that will be sergeants major soon. Uh, they're all really bright, talented people, and uh, and uh, MI will be in a very good position. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much for uh, for kind of talking through a lot of these things. It's been fascinating. Thanks very much. Appreciate the time. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, MWI is publishing new articles, research, and podcast episodes every day. And the absolute best way to keep up with all of that is by following us on social media. So find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And we love getting feedback. So that's also a great way to get in touch. Thanks again. Thanks again.